Good evening, everyone. And thank you, Gordon. Uh, I think most of us are probably familiar with this picture. Many of us have a copy of it hanging on a wall at home. Uh, but for anyone who, who doesn't recognize it or, or know anything about it, uh, th this brilliant painting was done for this church by one of our members, and uh, 125 prints were made and framed thanks to the generosity of another church member, and it has been, as Richard said, it's been available to, to, to buy uh, for 130 pounds with all the proceeds going uh, to our Come Together project, which is for our new church, our new home on the, on the Lisburn Road. Uh, I, think there are, I don't think there are actually 15 copies left. There's less than that now, but if uh, anybody else is interested in one, please speak to me afterwards. But the reason for having it here uh, this evening is because at the start of this new church year, and as a kind of standalone sermon, so this is not part of a, a, a series or the start of a new series, but as a standalone thing, I, I wanted to take time to consider what is it that this graphic image captures and communicates to us as a church? What is it that this kind of forces and encourages us to think about and remember as disciples of Jesus Christ in this place at this time? If, if you have a Bible, would, could you please turn with me to Matthew 5? We're going to read some verses starting at verse 13. It's page 969 if you do want to follow it in one of the Red Pew Bibles. And we're, we're breaking into a sermon or we're breaking into a series of, of teaching that Jesus delivered on the side of a mountain to his disciples. And I realize these, these are very familiar words. Most of us have heard them over and over again over the years. Uh, but they're great words. So please, will you, will you stand with me for the public reading of God's word? Matthew five, thirteen. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Grab a seat. Followers of Jesus... Followers of Jesus are influential people who make a difference. Followers of Jesus are influential people who make a difference. That, that seems to be, if I was somewhere, that seems to be what Jesus is saying here because using two well-known everyday commodities, he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the of the world. Now, before we go any further, I want to have a chat with Stephen. Uh, Stephen Johnson, who painted this picture. Now, don't come up just yet. Uh, who painted this picture that was inspired by this text. For those who don't know, and I realize that Stephen is not going to thank me for saying this, uh, but it's important they do, and I don't care. Uh, Stephen, Stephen is an award-winning artist whose work has been selected for display at the Saatchi Gallery in, in London, RHA Dublin, Royal Ulster Academy of Arts in Belfast. It's been, his work has been shown in galleries in France and in Australia. Stephen has won a number of awards, including KPMG's Best Emerging Artist at the Royal Ulster Academy of Art in 2016, and he has gained a reputation as one of Ireland's most promising young artists. And uh, I could say more, but as I've mentioned, 
he won't thank me if I say anything else. So anyway, Stephen, come here, a wee second. He also plays the drums. He's just one of these really annoying people. <laughs> Stephen, before we kind of talk about this piece in particular, painting is actually what you do. It's your livelihood. It's your job. How long have you been doing it and why do you do it? Um, how long? Um, so I've been doing it probably full time for eight years or so. And how I came about uh, doing it was when I was growing up, really enjoyed creating. Um, it was the only thing I felt good uh, at doing. Um, whether it was painting, sketching, going outside making forts, or when I was old enough, cutting my dad's lawn and doing my own big art attack. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, climbing up to the top of the garage roof and then having a look. It was the days before drones. Um, so uh, creative, uh, that kind of creating something was something that I absolutely loved. And yep. um, how, or sorry, why? Um, I don't know, it's got something to do with, on a Sunday evening, some folk would be like, oh, I have to go and work on Monday. And I'm like, oh, yes, I get to go and work on Monday, you know. Um, so between that, um, God gave me the talent and the feeling that I have a responsibility to use it, cultivate that, um, and for God's provision to actually allow me to make an income and living off it. So Brilliant. So Stephen, as you, as you thought about doing a painting for church, doing a painting for Windsor, why did you choose this theme or, or this idea as your inspiration? Uh, so this wasn't actually the original theme or idea that I had. The original one was your concept, heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And I thought, oh, that'd be brilliant. Windsor can get on board. That's a thing we'll share. We all know. Um, it's been talked about a lot. Um, but Too much. Too much. Know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then once I actually tried to develop the image, uh, it just wasn't cutting the mustard. Um, and at that point, my mum, who tends, <laughs> my mum dropped off this box of junk, which happens a lot. She's like, oh, Stephen will find something interesting to paint out of this. <laughs> so any junk I get, and it was from my granny's farm, and it was like all these old cool jars and uh, cooking instruments and stuff. And it was actually that salt container was in it, and salt and light was, or yeah, salt and light was um, on the back of my head a wee bit. And then that, I seen that, I was like, oh. It just clicked, it just kind of got it, and it was a gut reaction, and that uh, the space beam torch, which is a cool torch, is so retro, and I was like, put them together, I was like, oh, there we go, I have it. So it was more circumstantial that yeah. came about, kind of. Brilliant. Now, one of, the, one of the really interesting things, Stephen, about this painting, and, and there are many, but one of the interesting aspects of it is the title, mm -hmm. because you didn't call it Salt and Light. No. You actually called it taste and see. Yeah. So why? And, and, and what were you wanting or what were you hoping to communicate so, through the title? Yeah. So salt and light, I felt, was very static. Um, it was a very stationary title, uh, whereas taste and see had more of a dynamic movement to it. And I think that um, is what it was about. You know, the fact that as Christians we're called to live a life with our actions and with those actions for others to taste Christ in those actions and for people to see Christ's goodness and us trying to magnify God uh, in those actions. So it was very much more of a kind of movement, movement kind of a title rather than a just a stationary type thing. Brilliant. And another interesting feature, uh, and, and some people have noticed this comment on this, is that the, the salt container is kind of rusting uh -huh. or it is rusted. Yeah. And actually the flash lamp isn't on. Yeah, yeah. So why? What did you in mind? Um, so the thing I had in mind was uh, reading, reading that Matthew 5, um, 
I felt like there's a gentle reminder in there to not become tasteless, to not to hide your light. And so I wanted an element where it was an, a visual reminder of that, to not let apathy set in for the rust to cause, you know, uh, corrode the salt, for the battery not to die in the light, but to smother our apathy with our passion and our relationship with God, so that our vertical relationship with God would be passionate and defeat apathy with our outward relationship with people. Brilliant. Like, thank you, Stephen, so much. Thank you for sharing and thank you for this painting. We could almost just close now, couldn't we? It'd be enough. Some of you are going, go ahead, Dave, just do it. <laughs> uh, right, let's look back at Matthew 5 with me. And, and let me just repeat what I said earlier. Followers of Jesus are influential people who make a difference wherever they find themselves whether that's in your home, at work, at school, at uni, locally, nationally, internationally. Now, the thing about, about verses 13 and 14 is they start with exactly the same two words. You are. Not you could be. Not you should be. Not you need to be. Not you might be. You are. In other words, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're part of his kingdom, then this is your identity. So that's why Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And, and part of the reason that that is so significant is because, and this is something we have, we have said and we've teased out at Windsor on a number of occasions, identity determines behavior. Who you are and knowing who you are profoundly impacts what you do and, and how you live. So, for example, if, if you know that you are loved by God, that you are loved unconditionally by God, that is going to influence how you behave, how you relate to God, and how you feel about yourself. If you know that you have been saved, that you have been rescued, that you have been redeemed, that you have been born again, then that will affect how you come to worship. It will affect how you live because identity determines behavior. And here, is, as Jesus speaks to his disciples and as Jesus shares some of the most like, world-changing material and teaching ever given, he says really early on in this earth-shattering sermon, he says, here is your identity. You are. Not could be, should be, might be, need to be. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And just one other comment about, about the start of that, those two verses, 13 and 14, and I've highlighted this before. A more accurate translation, as I understand it from the Greek text, is you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. In other words, God has determined that his people, his church, his followers are the agents of change and transformation in his world. They are the people of influence who make a difference. That doesn't mean no one else can make an impact. No one else can do good in society. Of course, God is sovereign. God can use anyone and everyone. But what it does mean is that we, his church, his disciples, followers of Jesus, we are plan A. And I know it is a cliche and there are times when you do wonder, but the church, capital C, community of faith worldwide, the church is the hope of the world. You, says Jesus, and you alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There's no plan B. Okay, so let's 
consider and kind of probe these two commodities that are part of our true ID, salt and light. But before we reflect on salt and light from our 21st century Western perspective, let's be clear about the original context and about how first century people, the first hearers, how they processed what Jesus was saying to them. Because in Jesus' day, salt and light were critical elements to making life more livable, to making life more full, to making life more complete. Please, Please note that. In Jesus' day, salt and light, however we see them and understand them, but in Jesus' day, salt and light were critical elements to making life more livable, more full, and more complete. You see, today we scarcely give salt and light a second thought. We, we take both of them for granted, don't we? Or I'm referring specifically to salt, we increasingly see it as a negative thing that needs to be red-lighted. It needs to be reduced in our diets because of the role that it plays in a variety of health problems. Salt doesn't get a great press these days, yet in Jesus' day, salt was used over and over again because it was such a valuable commodity. Today, Salt's disposable, it's cheap, it's considered pretty worthless. And even light then was was considered more precious. When it goes dark here, street lamps come on, we flick switches around our homes without much thought, but in there were light back in the first century. Light was a cherished commodity because, for example, precious fuels were often used to create light and to sustain light. So however we kind of respond and react to discovering, well, this is who we are, we've got to appreciate that for the first followers of Jesus, for the early church to be told, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, that was groundbreaking. Like that was revolutionary. This was huge. They were critical people in making life more livable, more full, and more complete. And although our context is different and our perspective on these commodities may have shifted, the one thing that hasn't changed, the one thing that mustn't change, the one thing we must not dilute is the fact that we are people of influence who make a difference. Not we might be, not we could be, not we should be, but if you're a follower of Jesus, he says you are a person of influence who makes a difference. In and through us, and because of us, people in our homes, people in our workplaces, people in our schools, people in our universities, people in our social settings, people in our communities can experience, they can taste and see the kingdom of God. They taste and see in us and through us the presence of Jesus. Why? Because we are salt. We are light. So, what exactly does it mean? What does this look like and taste like tomorrow? Well, one of the immediate ways to to approach this is to consider the properties and the kind of functions of, say, salt, and then make the connections. And I know some of you there are. Now, back in November 2013, as part of a morning series on the whole Sermon on the Mount, which we called World Changer, I highlighted seven things about salt. I'm not going to go through them all in detail now, but I, I highlighted seven things that salt does. And then I encouraged us, and this is often what happens, I then encouraged us to be those kind of people. So here's a little bit of congregational participation. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to the person beside you, 
or a couple of people around you. If you know them, great. If you don't, even better, okay? And I want you to identify seven things that salt does. Okay? Seven things. Go for it. Just come up with seven things that salt does. Ten seconds. Okay, so seven seven things. Somebody shout out one. It preserves, right? That's one. Yep. Something else. Seasons. Yep. Didn't have that. No. Uh, it's my wife. I'm allowed to say no to her. Uh, but good, good, good one, but um, <laughs> I haven't done, right, okay, eight things that salt does, <laughs> right, right, uh, another one, pardon, closes wounds, okay, yep, pardon, kills slugs, thanks Tony, like, that's brilliant, <laughs> definitely don't know that one, anything else? Here they are. Here's the seven. Obviously, going to need to add an eighth to this. But anyway, it, it seasons. It, it flavors, doesn't it? And we often think about the whole idea. Whenever Jesus said, you are the salt, we are meant to be people who enhance other people's lives. Or it causes thirst, doesn't it? That's something that salt does. It, it causes thirst. And we are meant to be the kind of people who create in others a desire for more. It stings. Salt stings, it, it, it causes a certain degree of discomfort. And in some ways, we as Christians, if we, if we live out and walk like Christ walked, as we were thinking about this morning, if we live godly lives, there will be a kind of agitating component to our lives, won't there? It'll bring discomfort in certain situations. It also heals, as Adam says. And our presence should bring healing to a broken, hurting world. It thaws. Our words and actions should melt hardened hearts. It fertilizes. We should be people who help others to grow and to flourish. And then there is probably the best known one, apart from clean, uh, is preserves. That we should be people who reduce decay. That we should be people who make a positive difference in, in our world. And those, those are really helpful ways. And I, I still stand by those. And I still understand those. And I think those are really really important. And as, as we think about being light, on the other hand, we immediately and we often tend to think that we need to shine brightly. Or as Paul says in the, to the church of Philippi, we need to shine like stars in, in a kind of crooked generation. We, we are to illuminate. We are to be people who throw light on the situations. And we're also to be people who expel and expose darkness. That those are some of the thoughts. And all of that is true and worth saying. But as I've, I've thought more about what it actually looks like and tastes like in the everyday, and it is all wrapped up in this, but as I, I've thought about the kind of nitty-gritty daily life that we live and the discipleship that we live, I've come to be convinced and convicted more and more that we need to set what Jesus says here about you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world 
in the context of the rest of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those three chapters. Because I believe that they reveal to us how we are to be salt and light, how we are to be people of influence who make a difference, how we are to be people who make others' lives more livable, more full, and more complete, how to be people who shine like Jesus, or to be more accurate, who reflect Jesus, who on one occasion said, I am the light of the world. But then he turns around and says, no, you are the light of the world, and that we reflect the light of Jesus to the people around us. So what I want to just really quickly do, as I finish this, is, is, is look at what it actually means, what it actually tastes like, and uh, is like. And this is how you guard, I also believe, against becoming unsalty and against hiding your light under a bucket. This is the way that keeps us potent and keeps us visible. So taking on board the whole teaching of Jesus, here is what I believe it means to be salt and light. And there's a lot on the screen. I'm not going to go through it in all sorts of days, but here is what I believe Jesus meant when he said, you are salt and light. We are to be people who curb our anger. We are to be people who put things right when they go wrong between us. When things go wrong between a brother and sister in Christ, Jesus says, you need to put that right. And when we put things right between us, when they do go wrong, we are being salt and light. It's when we do not lust. Or if we do, which many of us do, but when we do, we take action to sort it out. We, in the words of Jesus, we, we gouge our right eye out if we need to. We treat the God-given gift of marriage with honor and with the respect that it deserves. When we do that, we are salt and light. We keep our word. We are people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. We are trustworthy people. And when we are, we're salt and light. We don't retaliate. We don't lash out. We don't take revenge. We don't get even. We share. We share generously. We go the extra mile. We turn the other cheek. We don't just love our friends. We love our enemies. And when we pray for those who persecute us and we pray for those who give us a hard time, we are being salt and light. We seek to be perfect as our Father is perfect. That's what Jesus says. Seek to be perfect as my Father is perfect. We give to those who are in need, and we don't always tell anybody about it. We pray as we have been instructed, our Father in heaven. We fast. We maintain an eternal perspective. We, we hold on lightly to the things of this world. We store up treasure in heaven as opposed to storing up treasure on earth. And when we do that, we are salt and light. We don't serve money. We serve God and God alone. We don't worry. We don't worry unnecessarily about tomorrow. But we trust our Father. We seek God's kingdom as a priority. We live a day at a time. We never judge others. We take our requests and our petitions to our Heavenly Father. We tread the narrow path. 
we bear fruit. We know God and we build our lives on the teaching of Jesus. This is what it means to be salt and light. And when we live like that, people taste and see. People taste and see the kingdom of God. They experience the presence of Jesus. Or to use a phrase from Psalm 34, which I reckon some people associate with the phrase taste and see. What does it say in Psalm 34? Taste and see what? That the Lord is good. And I believe when we live as Jesus has called us to live, as Jesus tells his new community to live, his followers to live, that is when we are potent and we we are visible. And, And even if you go back to the start of the sermon, you see when we live as beatitude people or as blessed people, as people who are poor in spirit, as people who mourn the brokenness and sin that's in our world, as people who are meek, as people who are humble, as people who hunger for righteousness, who thirst for God, as people who are merciful to others, as people who are pure in heart, pure in our motivation, pure in our purposes, and as people who are peacemakers again, then you are salt and light. And so my prayer for us as a church, inspired by Stephen's painting, inspired by the teaching of Jesus, is that we would live like this because we are people of influence who make a difference. And so please, God, may we be potent and be visible so that others may taste and see.